Welcome to Future Charlotte, the podcast where we talk about the issues, trends, and people shaping the future of our city. Charlotte is a city with a reputation for being shiny and new, a place that tears down its past and has replaced many grand old buildings with bland new structures. We certainly have lost a lot of great old buildings in this community, but our guests today know that's not the whole story. Here today with us on the Future Charlotte podcast are Dan Morrill, founder of Preserve Mecklenburg and longtime preservation specialist of all stripes in Charlotte, and Tommy Lee on the board of Preserve Mecklenburg. Thank you both so much for joining us. Happy to be here. So let's start with you, Dan, briefly. And I know that that might be a challenge with as much history as you've got in this city and how long you've spent uh, working to preserve parts of Charlotte and the surrounding communities. But give me an overview of who you are, how you came to this work, and uh, what Preserve Mecklenburg is. Well, I was deeply influenced by both my parents. They had a strong sense of history, grew up in Winston-Salem. I came to Charlotte in 1963 as a 25-year-old assistant professor at then Charlotte College, soon UNCC. And I became involved directly professionally in preservation in the 1970s when I got a certificate of preservation planning from Chapel Hill. And I became the consulting director of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Historic Landmarks Commission, which I had basically as a consulting position with the approval of the university. And I held that position until December of 2019, if you can believe it. I began October 1974. And I knew that... uh, when the time had come for me to, to leave the Historic Landmarks Commission, which was good on both, both sides, I think it was time for new leadership and time for me for a new direction. I knew that in my feeling, the greatest absence that the preservation movement has had in Charlotte is a strong, business smart, real estate active, private nonprofit preservation group So I went to my friend Frank Bragg and said, do you think we ought to try to do it? He said, and Frank's a wonderful person and he's always eager to try. He said, sure, that's a good idea. So we began, we got wonderful people like Tommy Lee, who's our president to join and other great board members in April of 2019. It's when uh, Preserve Mecklenburg was established and I've Basically, I'm now the administrative consultant, which is basically sort of a jack of all trades to kind of do things from time to time to stimulate preservation activities. And that's the story. And uh, Tommy, what about you? How'd you come to be involved and why do you care about preservation? I have a sort of family history there. I grew up in eastern North Carolina, a small town called Lumberton. My father was an attorney and a uh, big historian himself. He served as president of the North Carolina Museum of History, president of North Carolina Art Society, and was a big person. I have an aunt who was the first female graduate of the design school at North Carolina State University. Um, but I came to preserve Mecklenburg vis-a-vis my uh, volunteer activities in land conservation. I was a longtime board member and former chair of Catawba Lands Conservancy, uh, which is open space protection. 
Um, a lot of the things that the preservation community does is similar in structure to land conservation. And Frank Bragg and I, um, again, co-founder with Dan and uh, a great individual, came after me and said, we need your help. Um, we'd love for you to be a part of this board for, for which I am now chair, as Dan says. And uh, I've really dove headfirst into it. I love it. I think there's a great balance to be struck in the bland new buildings, as you suggest, that are being uh, or replacing um, historical structures. There's a great balance to be struck between that and preservation and, and retaining a sense of community uh, in the Charlotte region. And, and that's my real driver there is to bring back history and make it a positive and not necessarily a negative. So let's talk about kind of big picture. I think since I've been in Charlotte for uh, about 12 years, um, when I was a reporter at the Observer covering growth, I kind of saw growth, development, new, shiny, really baked into what people in Charlotte uh, get excited about, what the, the leadership structures in this city tend to celebrate. And I think that, you know, that colors a lot of our perceptions around things like historic preservation. How would you describe our cities and our region's attitudes towards the past and our treatment of the physical artifacts of that past up until now? Tommy, you want me to chime in there a minute? Start and I'll, I'll jump in where necessary. Well, look, Charlotte is an old city, and it's a booster town, and that's very much something that looks toward the future. But um, I think the attitude of Charlotte about uh, historic uh, elements is uh, much more positive than it was when I started back in the 1970s. And that's evidenced by the fact that uh, you see parts of the city and parts of the county that really understand that uh, old buildings can make economic sense. I, I look at, you know, uh, the old Ford Motor Company plant uh, up there on Statesville Avenue, which I've forgotten what they call it, Camp North End or whatever yep, it's called. That's right. Yep. Uh, I look at uh, NODA. You know, I got involved in NODA. It was historic North Charlotte, North Charlotte Mill Village in the 1980s. And, you know, nobody really understood what that could be. And now you look at what it is and people understand South End. I remember Tony Presley, who really sort of launched the idea. So, you know, the whole approach of preservation Mecklenburg, look, the cities that really care about preservation is where preservation makes economic sense. The re why does Charleston care about preservation? It's because Mayor Riley understood that that could be a boost to the economy of the city. Why do they care about preservation in, you know, Mobile? Why do they care about preservation in Savannah? Why do they care about preservation in San Francisco? Those communities that really value older buildings is because they're good for the economy. And that's the whole approach of Preserve Mecklenburg. We look upon developers as our friends. We look upon owners as our friends. And we look for ways to make preservation make economic sense. And that's what our whole approach is. And I'd, I'd add that it, it doesn't have to come at the expense, development and progress and economic um, 
upside for developers, for new owners, whether they be residential, commercial, whatever. It doesn't have to come at the expense of the elimination of historical structures. Um, we've had a numerous successes where we can prove that out and where we're going to continue to prove that out. And uh, it's just a great thing when you have willing owners, willing sellers, willing buyers who want to make sure they preserve the historical and cultural, cultural aspects of, of, of the buildings or the uh, facades that we're trying to protect at the end of the day. Yeah, a lot of times there's, I think, the narrative of preservationists want to stand athwart progress and say, stop, stop building, stop everything. And developers are bad guys who want to tear down everything. I think that's kind of the popular narrative a lot of times is these two groups in opposition. Tell me about Preserve Mecklenburg's approach, how what you're doing actually works, and give me a few examples. Well, let me, let me, let me, you opened up so many interesting issues. Let's take the Nobles and Shaw House on Mecklenburg Avenue. The developer there is a group out of Greenville, South Carolina called the Terra Nova Group. The Terra Nova Group is uh, headed by a man named Rob Haney. And Rob basically had to pay a price for that house. And I remember taking you over there and about two acres of land, which was so expensive that you had to allow infill. And we really worked in cooperation with the Historic Landmarks Commission because it was indeed a historic landmark to bring that developer to that property and allow him to see where he would be able not only to accept a preservation easement on the historic home to preserve it in perpetuity, but where he would have market-wise housing to add to the property. And he has told me, he's told me within the last week that uh, when he came involved with that, he thought he was going to run into all kinds of people who are just going to give him a bad time. They're going to, you know, preservationists, preserve Mecklenburg, Historic Landmarks Commission, yak, 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 yak. He found it exactly the reverse, that everybody worked together to understand that if you don't make these projects make economic sense, they're not going to happen. And the, and the historic home is going to go because, you know, if you deny change, you deny life. And you have to manage change in the preservation business. If you try to stand in front of change, you're going to lose. And that's, that's a perfect example of where we secured the preservation of an important house. And also going back to this issue of history, one of the things that Rob Haney of Terra Nova Group told me, and it's in his brochure, he has the historical narrative. The man who lived in that house was Mayor Victor Shaw. He's the reason we've got Bojangles Coliseum. He's the reason we've got Ovens Auditorium. It was the home of the Knowlton family and Mrs. Knowlton saved the public library in 1939 because there was no, the public refused to continue funding it and she launched a petition. Well, all that's included in the marketing. All, so when you buy an historic building, you're not just buying eyewash. You're buying tales. You're buying stories. You're buying 
And that can be an extremely effective marketing tool. So that's that's a perfect example of what we did. And only one of many. Yeah, and then we can go on, Eli, and talk about the Patterson Grocery Store, which we as Preserve Mecklenburg actually went and purchased on our own uh, and then found a willing buyer who wanted to help preserve um, the, the grocery store and the history on the west side of Charlotte. An African-American male came in, bought it from us, and is working with the city currently to convert the grocery store subject to some zoning changes to a community coffee shop or maybe a grocery sundry store or something like that so they can bring back the sense of community and gathering that was uh, very typical of the African-American neighborhoods during the Patterson Grocery Store's time. So another success where we're able to preserve a piece of history and the tales and also bring it back to life and it makes economic sense. And uh, those have been the real joys of being a part of Preserve Mecklenburg and what we're trying to achieve. So tell me a little bit more about how the economics work, because for people who you know aren't familiar with this, um, you know, who don't know what preservation easements are and all that, uh, take the example of the Knowlton Shaw House. How does that deal work and how is it different from either a traditional maybe uh, preservation deal where the whole property is untouched? or what people might think of as a traditional developer coming down and scraping the site clean? Well, you know, the difference is not as great as you think it is. Uh, preservation is basically just real estate. That's what it is. It's not like some different animal. Now, it is true. Let me go through the story of that one because it shows how we specifically operated. The Historic Landmarks Commission, by law, had to issue a certificate of appropriateness to allow that man to tear down that house. The owner wanted $1.85 million for the property. And uh, he all he had to do is wait a year. A lot of people don't realize <clears throat> designating something as an historic landmark, unless the city used eminent domain, which is almost politically impossible. Doesn't save anything because all the owner has to do is wait a year and then tear it down. That's that's the way the law works. That's not the Historic Landmarks Commission's fault. They have to do what the law says. But the owner had a year to tear it down. Well, um, I went to see him and said, look, why don't you give us an exclusive assignable option to buy this property? And it'll be for $1.85 million. So he gets his price. See, a lot of people think, if a seller sells something and allows preservation to occur, they're going to lose money. He won't lose any money. He's going to get $1.85 million for it. Well, uh, we, were, we had a six-month exclusive assignable option. It was our job to find somebody to whom we could assign that option. Terranova came to Charlotte, looked at the property, we used a man named Ben Collins who works with a salons group here in Charlotte. He had contacts there. We brought him to Charlotte. When he evaluated that property, he was simply looking at it from development potential. And that had to do the most important thing about that property was not that it was historic. It was that it was close to the Charlotte Country Club. And therefore, he could sell it down. So, so the... The economic realities are that you have to make it, it has to work. It has to work economically. Therefore, 
when they got it, when we when we assigned that option, he had to accept a preservation easement, which is a less than fee simple interest, which basically says he can't tear it down. Now the Landmarks Commission, because that's an historic landmark, will continue to have design review. But we have overlaid over that where they can't tear it down. So the house is going to survive. And by the way, just for the record, uh, and the Landmarks Commission was very cooperative in essentially approving the plan, approving the infill plan. The owner, of course, was happy as a church mouse because he got his money. So everybody came out of winter. We saved the house. The developer makes money on his project and the owner gets his price. Well, what else do you want? That's right. Now that's the way, that's the way you make it happen. And how many uh, units of houses are being built around that historic you know, uh, central structure? I know that right off the top of my head. I don't. Uh, I'm going to guess seven, Eli, and the house itself will be a residence. Um, so essentially the economics work because it was dirt without preserving the house and that dirt had to justify itself with square footage and your question is salient point it needed infill but what Terranova did uh, the Salins group Ben Collins and everybody else associated with it including Dan who did a lot of work and front work on this we ended up with uh, neighborhood sensitive development that the uh, Plaza Midwood neighborhood liked in terms of smaller homes on the infill lot that made sense for Plaza Midwood. And the economics worked. As Dan said, the seller got what he wanted and everything works. And we've got to preserve a piece of history in Charlotte. So that's kind of a nuts and bolts look at a close in on the ground deal. Let's zoom out to a bigger, bigger picture look. I'll be blunt here. Why does it matter? You know, I'm a guy who moves to Charlotte. Why, uh, why should I care about this? Because a lot of people, they see the word preservation and they think museum, stuffy, history. What do I, what, what do I care? So um, make the case. Well, the case made, made in two ways. First of all, we're talking about adaptive reuse. We're not talking about museums. I think museums are great. None of them make money, but I think they're great. But Biltmore House makes money. Uh, uh, Graceland, uh, Elvis Presley's home, Memphis makes money. But they, they don't make money. Williamsburg loses money. Um, we're talking about adaptive reuse. We're talking about taking buildings and recycling. Uh, Camp North End's a good example. They don't make, they don't make T-Model Forge there anymore, or they actually made A-Model Forge there. They don't make them there anymore, but you repurpose. So that's one. The other thing is, here we're getting philosophical. There is nothing more fundamental in my judgment to the nature of a culture than the underlying historical narrative. We have certainly seen a manifestation of that in the last three or four years, where there's been a shift in the narrative. I was brought up in a narrative that the United States won World War II, defeated Hitler, defeated Japan. We were the beacon of freedom in the world. Now, of course, there's a counter uh, narrative that is competing with that, 
which talks about, you know, critical race theory and various other times. But our job is to preserve artifacts. It's somebody else's job to interpret those artifacts. But if you don't have artifacts to interpret basically the underlying narrative of a culture, what the hell you got? You've just got tyranny of the immediate. You're just like a ping pong ball going across the table. So now I know that sounds very philosophical and all of that, but I think history is so important, so fundamental because it's not the past. It's human beings reflecting on the past, remembering the past. The past is like a whole bunch of marbles and you pick different marbles out to build a different story. But history is fundamental. It's so fundamental, a lot of people don't even think of it. They don't even know, they have no idea. Yeah, I think that's a good point that we've seen you know, disputes about monuments and street names and uh, the meaning of buildings and you know, recontextualizing things in terms of how we remember uh, people who owned slaves, for example. And I think that's a really good point that you make that if we don't have the physical artifacts around that, we can't really reinterpret history, understand the past. We're just kind of working from abstractions. And those, those physical artifacts, uh, the buildings, the structures, etc., are really key to future generations understanding, not just our own. So and it's not just buildings, it's also landscapes. It's it's a lot of different stuff, but that's exactly right. You know, they talk about, well, you're preserving you're per preserving a plantation house. Yeah, we're preserving a plantation house because it's an artifact of its time. Now, it might be interpreted differently according to what values shift, because values are always shifting. But the artifact, as you said, is fundamental to have there to look at, and then you have to react to it. I think you're also sowing seeds of, um, Dan and I are both eternal optimists. He and I talk about this on the phone a lot because we spend a lot of time together dealing with issues and opportunities, but we have an opportunity as optimistic historians, um, so to speak, to, to really teach, educate, and give historical narrative and um i don't know the word i'm looking for right now eli but but scope to to what's out there and in a neighborhood for instance to use your example eli that you're asking the question off of is i've got a new person coming to town what do i care well if you can develop a feel and if you can give opportunities to education and you've got a really cool mix of modern and historical uh, whether it be storefronts, whether it be homes, whether it be anything of the like, you've got an opportunity to, to, to mix the future and the past in a way that is positive, that brings out all the contributions to society that, to society that some of those like Shaw's and the Knowlton's made to Charlotte. I mean, Bojangles Coliseum was a modern marvel at the time, right? And they did that and we're preserving a historical home that looks nothing like it. But, um, it gives us an opportunity, one, to educate through the historical narrative. And one thing we do at Preserve Mecklenburg and specifically Dan does right now is we spend a lot of time writing the essays and giving the perspective of 
what this was about, uh, what it meant in its time, where it is now, who was involved, what they meant to the community, et cetera, et cetera. And it gives you the opportunity to really cast a positive light on all the things that made Charlotte what it is and made Charlotte a place that we understand is continuing to grow and change. And those narratives and the changes and thoughts and the values and the interpretation, as Dan said, they move all the time, but there's a positive in everything. And I think Preserve Mecklenburg is really about enhancing the positive view of history and the contributions to a city, to a culture, to a region that Charlotte's made. And a lot of these project opportunities we have are perfect opportunities to do that. So, yeah, I hear one that we need to preserve historical structures, landscapes, et cetera, so that we can understand, especially for new people coming to this community, what Charlotte is, how we got here, understanding, as Dan said, that this is an old city, not a shiny new city. And also, I think, as, as you were saying, Dan, that if we, you know, wipe too much of our history clean, we don't have the, the raw materials, so to speak, to wrestle with, understand, reinterpret, reimagine, and pass down to future generations. It's kind of like keeping the raw materials alive in some ways. To me, someone who lives life without a sense of history and awareness of history is like living in a room with no windows. And what history does is put windows in the walls and then you can look out, gain greater perspective. Yeah, as, as someone who is currently recording from a windowless room right now, uh, <laughs> that, that yeah, resonates a little. So uh, that's the positive view. And I wanted to ask, you know, as uh, two guys who have really been immersed in this world for a while, what gives you heartburn in terms of the buildings, um, structures, et cetera, that we have lost in Charlotte? You know, if you could, if you could reach back and and pluck something that was demolished out of that category and, and bring it back to life. Um, what would you retroactively save in this city? Well, one comes to mind, even though some people think it was saved, it really wasn't, but I wish the uh, United States branch of the United States Mint was still on West Trade Street because that really transformed Charlotte, uh, made Charlotte a significant place in the nation. And of course, uh, William Strickland, who was the architect of that building, he's buried in the Capitol in Nashville, Tennessee, because they admired him so much for that building. And he was probably, well, he was one of the premier architects of the early United States. And, uh, you know, that building was basically just torn down and they took some of the stones out and you know, rebuilt a replica out in Eastover, which is, I'm glad they did it, but I mean, and there are others, but you know, I'm one, you know, I don't spend a lot of time crying over spilt milk. It, it, it's, it's a fruitless effort. It's a fruitless effort. Uh, you have to deal with what is, not what could have been, in my judgment. Yeah, we're very much forward looking and I'm not going to point to a specific landmark that I have heartburn over. Um, I've been in Charlotte for a little over 25 years now and in North Carolina on and off my whole life. But, you know, if I look at it from a 
past perspective, more opportunities to mix the new and the old. We've lost more old than we have. Um, well, we've gained more new than we, and we've lost a lot of old, I guess is what the case is. You know, one thing I'd like to interject, because I think it demonstrates how important it is to have a private nonprofit. One of the questions you asked was, how is this different from the Historic Landmarks Commission? And I'd love for Tommy to talk a minute about the Winghaven Elizabeth Lawrence House and Garden Project and really how Preserve Mecklenburg being private nonprofit was so essential to the success of that. Would that be okay for him to speak to that? Yeah, of course. I'll be glad to, and I'll finish my thought. I just, from a historical perspective, more opportunities to mix old and new. Um, that's what you always want because we're not against progress. We're collaborative with developers. We know Charlotte's going to move and march on and continue to grow. But the more you can weave old and new together, the more interesting um, interesting colors. I'm actually in the textiles business and we do a lot of pattern work. And the way you weave old and new creates a lot of color and can create a lot of, of, of flair that's good for a city. Um, Going to the uh, Winghaven project at 342 Ridgewood, the niece and nephew of Elizabeth Lawrence, uh, famous landscape um, author and probably the best in her game, uh, has a house, which is the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Gardens, which is a conserved and preserved uh, historical landmark. The niece and nephew uh, owned the house next door and it came time in their lives where it was they were ready to sell and they had a price they needed um, and once again because of the flexibility of preserve mecklenburg and our ability to do more than the constraints that are put on historical landmark we were able to achieve something for the elizabeth lawrence house and gardens that we think sort of a first uh, in the preservation business and that was to ensure that a new house could be developed on the neighboring lot um, but that house could be set on the lot and constructed to ensure the preservation of air, light, water flow, and other things, hydrology, um, so that the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Gardens next door were not overtaken by McMansion, because a lot of what goes on in residential development, particularly in Myers Park, Eastover, and other historical neighborhoods, is we're going to maximize our square footage on each one of these lots because that creates economic value. Well, we were able to successfully find a buyer, get the price that the niece and nephew of Elizabeth Lawrence wanted and construct and put a preservation and conservation easement on part of the lot to ensure that an economically viable house could go up, fit into the neighborhood and the streetscape, and ensure that the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Gardens was not uh, subject to potentially devastating impacts of overdevelopment from an infill perspective. And we were able to work with Winghaven who have a wonderful board. They're a great group. We teamed up with them and worked for six months. Once again, went through an assignable uh, exclusive option agreement with the sellers, the niece and nephew, worked with architects, uh, came up with schematics, marketed it, found a buyer who's coming in, putting a new house on. The old house will be torn down, but the new house will be sensitive both to the Elizabeth Lawrence House and Gardens and the neighborhood, and it's economically viable. 
And that is an awesome, uh, you know, takeaway for the flexibility that we have as a private not-for-profit to make economically viable transactions possible. I think that's a good transition point to uh, to a final question as we come to the end of our time here. Um, if you were King of Charlotte, Emperor of Charlotte, you know, however, uh, whatever title you want, uh, or, you know, you had some kind of magic wand, you could change any law, change anything, change any market conditions. What's one thing you'd change about our community's approach to historic preservation and, uh, and why? Tommy, you want to talk to that? I'll be glad to if you lead off. Start on it. I've got some thoughts, but please start. Well, to me, the real secret of the future of preservation is for a group like Preserve Mecklenburg to be sufficiently robust in its own financial resources and community support to be able to sustain itself over the decades in the future because it can do so much. See, the big difference between a Landmarks Commission, which is a wonderful tool, but it's like a rake and a shovel. You know, they're different tools. They can only deal with buying, fee simple or any lesser included interest in a designated historic landmark or a property that's in a local historic district. And they can't do anything else. That leaves out 99.9% of the built environment of Charlotte Mecklenburg and the region. I mean, that's the reality. Now, we can, of course, and the, and the Elizabeth Lawrence Garden is a perfect example. That's not in a local historic district. It's not a local historic landmark, and it would not qualify to be a local historic landmark. It doesn't have the requisite special significance, but we could do it. Because we're a private nonprofit. So you've got to have a viable private nonprofit sustainable group to make the preservation movement in Charlotte, Mecklenburg, and the region be truly viable. I think uh, if I were, and I'm certainly not King of Charlotte, and I'm certainly not steeped in history as Dan is, as it relates to the past of Charlotte, uh, I learn a lot every day from Dan and from others. But Education, if everybody understood exactly what we were about today, it'd make our lives a whole lot easier. But knowing that that's not the case, um, we have to really put our nose to the grindstone and get after it and teach people that there is a lot of flexibility and there's a lot of creativity and that preservation, as you alluded to earlier, Eli, does not mean uh, an uneconomic or a, a bad transaction. There are plenty of ways to make preservation economically viable. And if I could wave my wand, everybody would get it right off the bat. This can be done. And we'd have unlimited support uh, to create a pretty neat community and, and, and hold part of that history uh, near and dear and use it for the future. But education, wave my wand, everybody gets that it's a creative, process and we have tremendous amount of flexibility as a private not-for-profit to do more than some of the limited organizations who do a lot of good for us uh but we could do a lot more well where can people find out more about preserve mecklenburg and the work you're doing you can go to www.preservemec.org um see that we have uh 
social media on Facebook, Twitter, a um, couple other uh, social media platforms. And uh, you can start at our website and call, contact, commun you know, communicate with us. And, and we're out and about speaking and talking and doing everything. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I've got Dan Morrill and Tommy Lee of Preserve Mecklenburg with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Eli. Thank you, Eli. Great being with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. Keep looking to the future, Charlotte.